Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. Jesus made some incredibly bold statements about prayer. He said in Matthew chapter 7, ask and you will receive. He said in John 14 verse 13, whatever you ask, I'll do it. James taking cues from Jesus here in our reading that Lawrence read for us in chapter 4 verse 2 said, you Christians don't have because you're not asking for it. It's almost unbelievable, isn't it? The way Jesus spoke about prayer. The way James is talking about prayer, that if you ask, you're going to receive it. You don't have what you don't have right now because you're not willing to ask for it. It is kind of unbelievable, and I'll confess to you this morning that a lot of times in my life I treat these statements like they shouldn't be believed because I don't always practice them. And don't always live them. This ethic of being willing to ask God and confident that what I ask Him I will receive doesn't really often describe my prayer life. I often hold back on my asks. And oftentimes my prayer can be empty of many big and bold answers from God. And James chapter 4 explains why. That's why I've come to this passage. There's something going on with us that causes conflict. That conflict can be with other people. That conflict can be with God. But there's something going on with us as people that we find ourselves at odds with other people, at odds with God. And we end up with an uneventful and an unproductive prayer life. And this conflict that's going on with us and around us has an origin that James wants to tell us about when he says there in chapter 4, verse 2, or pardon me, at the end of verse 1, that our passions, our desires, are at war within us. That doesn't just mean interpersonally. He says, where do wars and fight come from among you? That means interpersonal. Like, where does this conflict come? And you see down in verses 4 and 5, he says that when you're a friend of the world, you're at enmity with God. You're an enemy with God. That conflict exists. But he says here at the end of verse 1 that there's actually a conflict that's going on inside of us. You see, the conflict around us, the conflicts that are around us, are often a result of the conflict that's going on inside of us. And James says that conflict inside of us is our desires, our passions that are at war within us. So, if we're going to have a life of peace and we're going to have a life of powerful prayer, you and I are going to have to be people who square up with our desires to make some sense of them to figure out what's going on inside of us, to make sense of that with God so that we can become people who have peace and people who actually have powerful prayer lives. 
So let's try to figure that out today. Number one, we've got to start by asking, what is the danger with our desires? What's the danger here? Paul says you are at war inside of yourself with your passions, with your desires. There's a raging fight going on within you. You see, desire, we have always known. Desire is the internal engine of the person. It's the thing that churns us. It's the thing that makes us go. It's the thing that gets fueled by energy and then drives us to places. Human desire, what we want. Discovering human desire and what drives us is powerful. All good marketing is built around human desire, what we want. All good negotiators whittle their way down to the thing you want. In fact, if you listen to people who do hostage negotiation for you know, the FBI and other agencies, they'll tell you that their goal when they enter into those negotiations is just to uncover what that person ultimately wants. And when they identify that, what that person wants, they can go to work on the negotiation. You've probably experienced this before when you've been held hostage at a car dealership, right? <laughs> Feels about like the same inside a bank with a gun or, you know. And they go back and forth, back and forth, and they usually start with not the total cost of the car, but with what? The price you'll pay. Because they know ultimately you've come in there saying, I can afford this every month. And they whittle you down to what you want. You see, we know this. Freud knew this. This is what he was talking about with the id and the ego and the superego and all those things. Human desire unlocks, it, it unlocked is powerful. Psychologists try to help clients release this. And oftentimes, religion tries to tame desire. You know, that's the basis for most world views and religions that exist in the world. Stoicism is a worldview, a philosophy that seeks to empower people to tame their human desire. Buddhism, the core roots of Buddhism is really to learn how suffering eradicates desire from you and then you reach what they call nirvana, which is salvation. You're released from human desire. And so often, Christianity gets painted as a picture of a desire killer and just controlling that which you want. That's not actually true. Genesis 1 and 2 is a story of God-given desires. Genesis 3 is a story of ungodly answers for godly desires. Here's how Paul would explain it in Ephesians 4 later on when he could make sense of how sin entered the world when God created things to be good and then sin entered the world and broke it. Here's what he said in Ephesians 4 verse 22. He said that you and I should put off the old man, you know, the person under sin, who is corrupted by desires that have been deceived. you got to catch that. Christianity is not the method by which you stamp out desire in your life. Christianity is the pathway where you get your desires to be made right. You see, Satan takes godly desires and offers you ungodly, not from God, satisfactions. 
at the root of every single desire you have for sin is a godly satisfaction that you're not thinking about, that you're not aware of, that you're not possibly willing to practice by faith. You want to test it? Let's test it, okay? When you are tempted to lie and you want to lie, at the root of that desire to lie is typically acceptance or advancement. I want to get farther somewhere or I want to be accepted with a particular person or group of people. Well, God offers you acceptance and He has a way of advancement that is beyond the system of this world. You're tempted to steal. Stealing is saying, I want greater provisions than what I have right now. And you could be in a desperate situation or you might just have a lot and you want more. God says, I have promised to always take care of you. You've got to go through me to be cared for. Let's take it down to our young people, to our high school, to college age. Maybe some of you that are in your 20s or 30s, maybe you're in your 50s still struggling with this, and you have a group of people that you know and are acquainted with, and they want you to go out and party together. What's the draw to that? Come be part of a community that's going to have a great time together. God's got an answer for you, a community of people where you can have joy. Maybe you're a person who doesn't want to go out and party. Maybe you want to drink alone. What you're really searching for is relief from your pain. Maybe you're struggling with gossip in any of your relationships. You just sort of want to talk about people who aren't there. What's happening really is you're wanting to either build yourself up or you're wanting to make a connection. And the problem is you're building yourself up or making connections in ways that God has not described or helped you with. There are ways you can do that. Maybe you're drawn to pornography. You know what you want? You want intimacy without the risk of being rejected. That's really what pornography promises you. You will be accepted with no risk of rejection. You want sex outside of marriage? What you want is probably pleasure. Or you want to express your commitment. God has given us ways to do that. And so God, Satan takes godly desires and offers ungodly solutions. Church, the first thing you need to know today is this. God does not want you to get rid of your desires, but to get your desires made right. Are you following with me? That's the danger of desire. So number two, here's the damage that's done. When you are deceived in your desires, and when you are following after these corrupted desires and, not, and you're satisfying godly desires in an ungodly way, there's two things that happen to us. The first one is this. Our prayer life is defeated. It defeats your prayer life. Look what he says there in verse 1 and 2. He says, you desire, so you murder and you covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You will either, when you have corrupted desires and you are trying to go after them, you either, number one, avoid communication with God. You avoid it. You don't want to ask Him for what you want because you know what you want is what He doesn't want for you. So you just don't pray. You avoid communication with Him. You don't open up to Him because you really probably don't want His answers because you know it. Or maybe you've deceived yourself a little bit. Maybe you've come to believe that what you want is, is really what God wants because God just wants me to be happy. I hear that quite often. God just wants me to be happy. And so you don't avoid communication with God. You attempt to manipulate God. Listen to what he says in verse 2. Or verse 3, pardon me. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives to spend it on your passions, your desires that are deceived. You see, we ask for things that we want, but in a way that makes them seem like God would want it. And like any good father, he says no. Now I want to caution you here. 
If in your life right now you're experiencing some resistance, let's say circumstances aren't lining up for you right, or let's say the godly people that you have in your life are really cautioning you or warning you against something, have enough humility to pause and say, God, is this what you want? Don't just shove plans down God's throat or down other people's throat. Don't just try to force everything to make things happen. If circumstances aren't lining up and the people in your life are going, you ought to think about this for a second. Don't just bowl forward without listening and saying, you know what? God, show me what you want. God may be trying to save your life. You see, this state of being impacted is not just something that impacts you, it also impacts God when we are living in our corrupted desires. It doesn't just defeat our prayer life, it also divorces us from God. Now look at this language. This is used on purpose by James in verse 4. He says, when you live this way and your corrupted desires, meaning I want to just satisfy myself and nothing else, he says in verse 4, you adulterous people. That wasn't just flippant language. He's using marital language on purpose because this is how it impacts God. This language is harsh, but it explains the experience that God has when our desires are deceived. Notice it doesn't say that God is enraged with you, you people. It doesn't say it that way. It doesn't say that God is against you. It says God is enraged for you. You see, God hates sin. He hates your deceived desires, not because he hates you, but because he hates what sin does to you. He hates how sin robs from you. He hates where sin takes you in your life because he loves you. Our deceived desires and committing of that sin crushes the heart of of God like a spouse being cheated on because that's what he is to you you know God is the only one who has made a vow to you for all eternity Jesus said to those people that are asking about the resurrection you know in heaven we're neither married nor given in marriage like we're going to get there and the marriage that God has blessed you with if you have one today will come to a place where it's satisfied Meaning, that partnership has got you to the place where you need to be. And now, he says, in heaven, we're not married or given in marriage. If you're not married yet, and maybe that's not in God's plan for you, you can take hope in that. That there's going to be a greater satisfaction than even finding that marriage here in this life. Because that's what we actually have from God. He is the one who has taken an eternal vow to love you no matter what. And look how God responds. This is God's experience when we live in our deceived desires and follow after ourselves and seek only to satisfy ourselves. He says, it's like committing adultery. And now how would he respond to this? Just think how you might respond to it. Verse 6 tells you exactly how God responds. If there's five words that you should memorize from the Bible, it's these five words. If there's five words that you should underline in your Bible, it's these five words in verse 6. But he gives more grace the underlying response of the bible is always this but he gives more grace in response to our sin in response to our rebellion in response to our offense and continual hurt of him but he gives more grace god's response is to heap more and more and more grace upon us 
beyond anything we as humans can understand. Romans 5 tells us as far as our sin goes, his grace goes that much farther. It goes farther than that. That he constantly is heaping upon us grace upon grace upon grace. Because he doesn't just want to give us guilt, he wants to draw us back to him. So you and I must make a decision, and James shows us, thirdly, the decision we must make. There's danger with our desire. It damages all kinds of things in our relationship with God, in prayer. So you and I have a decision to make in response to this grace. Grace is what delivers us from desires being deceived. So you may be asking me today, okay, I hear you that the desires I have for sin, they're real and they're present and they're corrupted and they're deceived and I don't want to follow them, but they're so strong. What's going to pull me out of them? The grace of God in Jesus Christ, when you see him, draws you away from those desires. It actually makes you look at sin and say, I don't want that anymore. It gives you the strength and the power to move towards being sinless in your life, to work towards that, to get rid of sin, like Paul said, dying daily to the old self, to live to the new self, where you look to God and say, I actually want what he wants in my life. If you want to have a new way of living, new desires, To want what God wants, you've got to go where grace is found. You've got to go where grace is found. Now, where is that? Look what he says in verse the end of verse six. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but pours out grace to the humble. You've got to go where grace is grace found in a spirit of humility. Wherever there is humility, grace shows up. Wherever there is an acknowledgement and ownership of our sin, which is the expression of humility, grace begins to flood. But where there's pride, there is walls built up, and the grace won't flow over those walls. You're saying, pride says, I've got this on my own. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to do it by myself, whether it's seeking pleasure or seeking religion. But if you do it by pride, saying, I've got this without you, God, grace can't pour in, and you won't do it. You'll become either embittered or self-righteous, but you won't know the Father, and you won't be saved. Grace shows up where there's humility. So how do we get there? Let me tell you quickly. Number one, he says you've got to commit to follow. You get to grace by committing to follow him. Look what he says in verse 7. Submit yourself to God. Listen, believer. Obey what you know today. You don't know it all. I can guarantee that. I don't either. There's a lot of things we don't understand, but there are a lot of things you know about what God wants for your life. Today, commit to just obeying the things you know. 99% of our problems would find resolution, get the grit to do what we know is right. So if you want to find grace, you got to get humble by committing to follow. Number two, you got to take a stand. Look what he says in the end of verse 7. Resist the devil. Resist him. That means militarily like a strategy to stand up and say, he is my enemy and I'm setting my forces against him. So you're here right now in a place of safety in this environment. You know you can decide right now that you are going to look the devil in the eye and say, I'm against you, not with you. I'm not going to dance with you. I'm not going to walk alongside of you. I'm not going to play with you. I'm not going to hang out and see how far I can go before I get burnt with you. I'm done with you. So many of us have 
the devil roaming in our lives because we haven't looked at him and said, I'm done. You're still playing with him. You still want to dabble in the pleasure but have enough religion to ease your conscience and your fear of going to heaven. And look at the promise. He said, if you resist the devil, what happens? Did you, that, that means he is scared of you. It doesn't mean he says, oh, I'll just give up. I, he says he's afraid that if you look the devil in the eye and say, today, right now, I know I'm done with this sin. It's over. I'm done with the Satan. I don't want his ways anymore. Then all you have to do in your life is ask God for strength, not answers anymore. God, give me the strength today to do what I've committed to do. Stop playing with him. Okay, so you need to take a stand. You need to know him personally. He says, draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. You can't stand on the outside of Christianity, hearing the generalities like Jesus loves the world and Jesus died for sinners. You've got to come home and hear that Jesus loves me and died for my sin. That means you've got to start naming your sin. And you've got to start seeing on the cross Jesus saying, I'll take that lie that you told Anthony. I'll take that pain you caused that person, Anthony, and I'll absorb it so they don't have to anymore and you don't. I'll take that sin off you and I'll take it. It's got to become personal to you. Because when you feel personal hurt for your sin, it gives birth to eternal gratitude for Jesus. Lastly, you've got to start changing your ways. Notice he says there at the end, Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Take your laughter, make it gloomy. What's he talking about? He's saying you need to stop taking sin so lightly. Our frivolous attitude towards sin is what put Jesus Christ on the cross. And the way we look at it, crucified him. He says, cleanse your hands and purify your heart, you double-minded. That means you must stop living two lives, two souls, two spirits, two lives, saying, I live this way when I'm religious, and I live this way when I'm not religious. You've got to make a hard decision. If you're in or if you're out, come what may, whatever the cost may be, I'm going to be in. That's a single life, and you've got to decide that. I know for a fact Jesus Christ made that decision. That regardless of the cost, I will be 100% all in for them. I know he made that decision. He was single-minded to do what it took to love us all the way that we needed his love. Why? Because doing that was his God-given desire for joy. And when he followed that, he had eternal joy because he had reconciliation that he provided for us to have back to God. It came with an incredible cost and when you start to come near to that and you start to see the cost and you start to appreciate it it warms your heart to where you see the expectations and the call of God not as desire killers but everything God has told you to do you begin to see as desire fulfillers and when that light bulb comes on and that penny drops in your mind all of a sudden, when you start praying, you'll start praying for the will of God. And guess what will happen in your life? You'll ask and you'll receive. You'll say, hey, Jesus, will you give me this? And you say, gladly, I'll pour this out for you. Because what you finally want is what I want. And it's what's best for you. The first place you see that is Jesus. And if that's where you need to start today, come, see what Jesus has offered you. And let us help you become one with him. Why don't you come as we stand and sing?